Welcome to Thought Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Thought Hack. Um, before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out and thanks to our sponsors over at Catalyst Case. So this week um, is a conversation I've actually been looking to have for a really long time. Uh, our guest is Jasmine Wahi. Um, I know you're like a sort of curator. You own a gallery called Project Empty Space. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more that you do. I don't want to just encompass it in those two things, uh, if you wanted to elaborate on that. Sure. Um, I can give you a quick description because I think I'm a sort of consummate art hustler. Um, I am the co-director of Project for Empty Space, um, as well as a founder, and that is a I, what I would consider an arts ecosystem. So it's a gallery, it's residency programs for artists, it's printing, um, as well as other sort of public art programs. Um, and then I'm also a writer and professor, um, as well as, as of recently now former, um, Holly Block social justice curator at the Bronx Museum, um, which I left, I guess the end of last year. Um, so I do, I do a whole bunch of different things in the cultural space. That's, I mean, I, I met you through um, the whole Project Empty Space thing, the gallery, and I was fascinated because I think that was like my first, I guess, first time I engaged in a real world kind of way with um, the art world. It's it's always been this abstract thing to me where um, it's something you see in the movies or whatever, and that's like a, you almost look at this like, as some sort of like elitist thing that happens somewhere in the corner of the world that really doesn't impact your day to day. But um, being across the hall from you guys for a little bit and getting to know uh, the artists, like, you know, talking to the guys like David every day and so on, it, it really changed my perspective on it. And um, I started to pay attention to a lot of um, like your Twitter feed or your Instagram and checking that out. And, uh, in in a lot of ways, it I guess opened me up uh, in terms of my perspective and my awareness of, of certain issues that I mean, hopefully we can elaborate on today. Yeah. So um, first and foremost, we we're in a space now uh, in terms of society. Socially, we struggle with um, I guess. Things like uh, free speech and mm -hmm. um, something people have uh, a, uh, a term people have coined uh, cancel culture and all of this. Where do you fall in the free speech conversation? Do you feel like people should be able to say whatever they feel like saying or should there be, I guess, um, some sort of like limitations in terms of what can be said aloud or via media or whatever yeah um i'm smiling because i have a long answer and a short answer which one do you want the long one we're here for <laughs> a while let's let's do the long one okay so the the long well i guess the short answer leads to the the long answer so i think cancel culture is problematic it's akin to censorship um and i think we can't 
if we pick and choose what we censor, then we are really no better than the people who we're sort of theoretically in opposition to or the opinions that we're in opposition to. So I wholeheartedly believe that people should be able to say really whatever they want and then deal with the consequence of it. Um, You know, I've said things that have gotten me in trouble that are problematic for me. I consider them to be learning experiences um, and something that I can evolve from in one direction or the other. Um, And, you know, I think the people who are willing and open to allow growth of perspective and sort of evolution of thought um, are really the people that matter. Uh, Other people who are sort of unequivocally like, this person is done, canceled forever. um, I think it's a really limited way of thinking. The caveat to that is there are certain things that people do and not necessarily things that people say, um, but actions that they take that I think are abhorrent and and, um, condemnable. Um, so, you know, one thing people ask me about one person, I guess people ask me about all the time is R. Kelly. Um, oh yeah, go ahead. I, um, yeah, there's, um, when it comes to R. Kelly, it's, it's kind of mixed because then you kind of go into the whole like Bill Cosby thing and it's you struggling to separate the art from the artist and if that's at all possible because um in the case of bill cosby especially and um i don't know if you got a chance to check out that um i guess the docuseries on showtime but yeah let's talk about cosby what he did for people of color african-americans uh particularly um culturally what he gave them i think is amazing i think it's incredible that he was able to do that his i never took his reasoning or his intent or any background type of stuff into consideration in the creation of that right if if someone has like i guess uh ugly ulterior motives and then they create something beautiful does that take away from that beautiful thing they created right which is um tricky in a whole other conversation i guess I think there are things that you do that, unfortunately, there's no coming back from. Yeah. And, I mean, it's sort of like like murder. Because, I mean, I, I think it, it's, it should, to some degree, correlate to the, the damage you've done. If you've hurt people and those people can't walk away from the hurt, you shouldn't get to walk away from that either. Right. But, you know, I think with the Cosby issue and maybe to an extent the R. Kelly issue is, well, actually, I would say more specifically with the Cosby issue is when you think about the show and then you think about what he did as an individual with the show, there's a whole other economy and ecology tied to him you know, a whole other cast of characters who participated in that show, um, who are black actors and entertainers who have entered into a space um, because of what he created and because of the namesake that he had. And so it becomes, you know, complicated. And I think, you know, everything is complicated, which is to go back to your initial question, why cancellation is 
so difficult for me to wrap my head around because it leaves no room for nuance or nuanced discussions. Mm. So, you know, yeah. personally, I don't, you know, I grew up watching the Cosby show too, because yeah. there was no representation for brown people really in the, in the eighties and and nineties, even until very recently. So that was sort of foundational for me growing up. Um, and probably I don't think I've deliberately avoided watching the Cosby show. It's just, I haven't watched it as an adult. Um, but it's something that as a personal choice, I probably wouldn't now, but I wouldn't necessarily penalize the other people who participated Mm. in that show and who were impacted by the show's reach. Um, and same, you know, with R. Kelly, I choose not to listen to his music. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, again, there's like a lot of nuance that goes into a discussion of someone preying on on children um, that is Um, requires a different lens. It's hard because um, at first, I mean, I think it it depends on the person. I wouldn't penalize people who participate in enjoying these people's, I guess, art or whatever. I can't listen to R. Kelly at this point without thinking about it. Right. Without associating. So it'd be hard for me to do it. as far as the Cosby show, um, less the Cosby show and more so a different world mm, was yeah. was kind of like impactful for me. It made me look at college and educated black people and opportunity and, and stuff in a way that usually when we were represented at the time on television, it was, you know what I mean? Growing up as a kid, it was like, uh, what am I watching on TV? It's like... Judge Judy and Jerry Springer and, <laughs> right. you know, all this other stuff. And then, like, and I'm I'm fairly young at this point. And then you have a different world. It was very, like, sharp, uh, I guess, in terms of the comparison between the, the two things. Yeah. Um, it was good TV. Yeah. The... The thing is, I, I also agree, in terms of cancel culture, I feel like sometimes it's almost easier to socially speaking come back from murdering someone than saying something that that pisses people off like um it doesn't leave room for nuance it doesn't leave room for growth if someone said something on their twitter feed like a million years ago i'm exaggerating like 20 30 years ago yeah i don't I mean, even 10 years, I don't know what type of growth that person's been through. I don't know what um, what experiences have changed that person. Should yeah. they go back and delete all the tweets when they change their mind? Like the average person isn't doing that. I'll be honest. Um, friendships like, like David's mm-hmm. changed my perspective on a lot of things because growing up in an urban space, you have a very closed like idea and perspective on things and unfortunately there are aspects of our community that are very like rigid and closed-minded yeah so i i think if we treated a lot of those quote-unquote cancellations as um opportunities for learning i think people would be better off for them yeah a hundred percent i mean the problem that i have with social media in general and tell me if this is going uh, too far on on a tangent but wherever you want to go um 
it is so limited and binary in its thinking. There's really no room for nuance or discussion. And that's part of that is because of the sort of, um, what's it called? The, the structure of it, right? It's like, you can't post, even though I try, you can't post like a novel or dissertation going through all of the various iterations of nuance that we should be discussing. It's really an all or nothing kind of culture. And it exacerbates our sort of like collective understanding that either you're good or you're bad, you're right or you're wrong. If you do something wrong, you can't recover from it. Whereas like the reality of how humans are is we are as, as Jesus and Mero, and I'm like wearing the sweatshirt, as Jesus and Mero always say, you know, God is working on all of us, right? They say it, they say it as a joke, but you know, evolution is part of who we are. Um, and, you know, to this idea of like, should someone go back and delete all of like the, the problematic things that they once said? I don't think so. I think who you are is who you are. Humans are flawed. Um, and we're, constantly shifting and changing and sort of like removing elements of, you know, the, the maybe negative things that you've done in the past is really, I think, disingenuous in some ways to just the evolution of a, a person. I, I think um, a lot of, I don't know if you want to call them buzzwords or whatever, a lot of things have been, um, I guess, sprouting up. So you have things like, uh, Terms like um, virtual signaling or um, <laughs> which I mean, I'm kind of on on both sides about um, you have things like uh, wokeness and so on and so forth. And I think we we've gotten to a place in society where people are more concerned with being right than being correct. Right. I agree. Um, and social media creates a space where you don't really have to, one, deal with the immediate. Uh, it's funny because we're, we're not going to go there, but you don't have <laughs> to deal with the immediate um, reactions or consequences of the things you say. Right. Because, I mean, you're sitting in front of a screen. You can say whatever you want. You could tweet something crazy and put your phone down and walk away and not even think about right. like the person on the other side of that. Um, and then the the other thing is the tribalism that comes from that mm -hmm. you don't really have to sit and listen to someone's side you could kind of retreat to your own tribe or group and have people reinforce your thinking and you don't really have to deal or feel like you should change or absolutely inject anything new to um i guess your consciousness or whatever you want to call it yeah absolutely i mean i think you hit the nail on the head it we have created through the digital space a culture for ourselves where we continuously um, self-validate. There's like a lot of navel gazing, you know, talk about a buzzword, navel gazing going on when people say stuff and then there's no accountability. They can just sort of like walk away. You can say something wild, yeah. walk away, come back. And, you know, a million people may have come at you, but you can go find solace amongst, you know, the people who validate what you're saying and then there's no room um for change or there's no incentive really to change and yeah i think i don't know i think all of social media even though i indulge in it a lot um because i think it's a fascinating social experiment and 
a really kind of like strange way to think about how humans interact with each other. Um, I think it's very toxic. Yeah, I mean, social media, um, just to touch on that, I feel like is great and horrible in many ways. Yeah. I think like every tool, it depends on the person using it. Yeah. Because social media has, on the other hand, been able to bring about like change. It's It's opened up. Um, and democratize the news to a degree. So yeah. like people, which also is a bad thing, but um, people can report things like um, when, um, for example, the, um, everything in relation to the Trayvon Martin killing to um, yeah. more recently, and I guess more pointedly, uh, the George Floyd mm-hmm. situation and people being able to mobilize and so on and so forth. I mean, on the downside, people do abuse these platforms and, I guess that that says more about, I guess, the people abusing the platforms than the platforms themselves. True. Yeah. I mean, they're tools. Yeah. These all of these things that we've built are are tools that can be um, manipulated and exploited yeah. however we want them to. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, the. The tricky thing is and um, the cancel culture, I'm I'm pivoting and jumping around to. So it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. The cancel culture thing. I think, um, and I, I don't, I'm not going to say virtue signaling isn't a thing. I, I don't know about the terminology or if I would label it that, of course, but I do think to a degree people feel almost rewarded with going along with, um, like groupthink. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If everyone has already agreed on an idea, then it's it's nothing for me to go along with the same idea, get a bunch of likes and sort of get that dopamine hit. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely validating. Um trying to engage in a nuanced conversation about why or what's going on is almost like discouraged. Mm-hmm. Um there are people who feel like um and I'm not a big fan of labels in this way, but um, I guess everything's kind of been split up into the left and the right or the extreme left, extreme right, that um, that people on the left are are more of the danger to free speech than than anyone else. Yeah, because of, um, I guess, policing conversation and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say I think that's a thing that goes in multiple directions, in both directions. And the reason I say that is um, a couple, when was it, 2019, I guess, I did a an exhibition called American Truth, um, which the thesis of that show was that there's no such thing as absolute truth um, and that truth is really rooted in perspective and, and positionality, which I didn't realize that that was such a sort of like contentious issue but a lot of people had issues with that um but the reason i came to that conclusion was because when i was thinking of the show i think i was reading baldwin and there there's a baldwin quote about the truthful mirror um and so just like on a whim i googled american truth and i found this what i would consider to be a kind of like far-right conservative news organization, a registered nonprofit um, called American Truth. And it was, it's sort of like belief structures espousing, 
exactly what you would imagine a sort of far right conservative yeah. organization would espouse, you know, things like um, Sharia law is coming to like, you know, change our children and, and convert them all into Islamic terrorists and, um, you know, like critical race theory isn't a thing, you know, stuff, stuff like that. And I was like, oh, this, what they're purporting to be truth is diametrically opposed to the things that I consider to be truth or fact. Mm -hmm. Um, and so from that, my conclusion was, okay, there isn't actually anything that any of us, like maybe the majority of us agree on a certain thing, but there will always be someone who disagrees mm -hmm. with the, the basis of what we call fact. Um, and so I can't remember why I started talking about this, um, but, you know, with regard to policing um, and, and censorship on the left or the right, I think it's sort of, um, it's on, it's coming from all sides. Um, and it, you know, I guess it just depends on what media you're consuming. Or who you're yeah. you're surrounding yourself with, I, I think um, I'm more. I guess if I were to say in general, if I were to categorize myself, I would more say like centrist left. I'm sort of, uh, I guess I'm not super conservative in terms of social issues or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm more of a to each his own like as long as what you're doing doesn't like directly affect me like yeah go nuts like i don't really care you know what i mean <laughs> right to each their own yeah yeah and i think that's a a decent way to i guess just engage socially as long as you're not hurting anybody so on and so forth like for instance like uh, my opinion on like the drug laws and so on and so forth and i'm i'm big on like statistical data even though nowadays you could kind of anyone can put right. like a report together and <laughs> make it lean whichever way they want um i'll and the example i'll i'll use is um a while back like um alex jones was alex jones was deplatformed because of he was saying a lot of i guess depending on where you're sitting on the aisle problematic stuff and people were like applauding it where they're like yeah we should definitely cut him off and he shouldn't be allowed to say anything they should take it a step further isps should block him from whatever and I'm not a fan of Alex Jones. I just thought, yeah, that's kind of bad. Like, that's problematic. Because yeah. if you set the precedence of, well, we can cut off people that we deem are problematic, who makes that right. decision? Who decides what's problematic speech and what's okay speech? Right. I mean, unilateral decision-making is... Yeah largely what gets us as societies into trouble in the first place yeah. um because they're not democratic um so yeah i i mean i agree with you i think i agree with you and i also i agree as as someone who has agency to decide what media i consume because i have that agency i think that everyone should have the opportunity to speak there's um the best example i could come up with with how i would prefer to deal with things is um a while back and i don't know if this is super well known but i watched it 
um, Bill Nye, who's an actual scientist, yeah. even though everyone grew up thinking, like, you know, he did these kids. Bill Nye went to my high school, by the way. Really? I mean, like, a thousand years before I did. But, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, Bill Nye um, had a debate, a live debate, but it was um, it's available on YouTube for anyone that wants to go to watch it, um, with a creationist. Mm-hmm. And he was like, your ideas are silly, but I don't feel like you should just go away. I think we should discuss them in an open forum. And what happened was Bill Nye and his ideas very decidedly like um, made the guy look bad. Yeah. Now, and that's not the goal. No one wants to like shit on anyone's belief system or whatever and so on and so forth. But it's like, if you believe this, it's, I felt like it's better for society for you to discuss this in an open forum and debate these ideas and look like, you know, everyone's like, oh, wow, like clearly this way of thinking doesn't really hold up like logically or whatever. Yeah. Then to push people away and they don't disappear. It's not like, yeah, they go away. Like they just sort of go into these silos with other people that think the way they do. Yeah. And I feel like that's where um, people possibly get radicalized and it, they become dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, think about it. This is a sort of weird analogy, but um, suppression, you know, on a biological level is is what leads to, you know, like festering issues. When you don't address something, it festers and grows just in different ways. Um, you know, think about cancer. When you don't address it, it metastasizes. So in the same way, you know, I often talk about like white supremacy as a cancer because it's something that we have not been able to address head on because it's so deeply ingrained in this country and the foundation of this country. And it just continues to grow and it just manifests in different ways. Do you feel like part of that might be because, um, we automatically dismiss and I'm obviously black. And I mean, it on, on our side, anyone that immediately doesn't like, I guess in a very strong way, like come at the idea of racism or whatever is like, um, a sellout or whatever. And so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. My thing is, and one of the things that impressed me is, um, I forget the guy's name, but um, I saw an interview um, he did on Joe Rogan. And um, he's this black guy that actually went, like, he seeks out Klansmen mm-hmm. and basically just wants to have conversations with them. Are you talking about the person who um, they made the movie about Black Klansmen? Who's the a- actual, like, I think he was FBI or CIA. No, no, no. This, this is a is different a, guy. I, he's a he's an artist. He's a musician. Oh. And he actually did a lot of touring in okay. these cities that were, like, just extremely, I guess, considered racist places. Yeah, yeah. And he'll meet, like, I think uh, the story he told, um, I'll eventually send you the clip. Yeah. But he meets these Klansmen and he has conversations with them. He meets them where they're at. Like, yeah. basically, like, why, like, you know, why do you hate me and blah, blah, blah. And they have these conversations. And, and nine times out of ten, he says, these guys were willing to talk to him. Yeah. And they didn't immediately, like, run up and punch him in the face. They just have these very <laughs> strong ideas right, about right. who he is. And by engaging them, 
where they're at, a lot of them basically they they gave him he has a collection of clans robes. People basically denouncing yeah. their belief system just through like a lot of these guys probably never met a black person. Yeah. I I wonder if I feel like the the cancer you're talking about, like when it metastasized or whatever, um, the the result was um the whole situation with um Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Where yeah, like you I agree. feel like these people don't don't matter. We don't talk to them, we kind of like condescend and don't engage with them. They don't go away. These yeah. people still have voting power. I feel like they they feel like they're not heard. A lot of people that voted for Trump apparently voted for Obama too. So it's it's not as simple as just calling people racist. Yeah. I think people feel like they're not being heard and they're being talked down to or whatever and they're going to react. Yeah. I guess my reaction to that is um I definitely understand that logic. Um and I think it's a very it's very generous to want to meet people where they're at Mm. but i think in the how many five five hundred year history of this country there's been ample time for people to sort of like get their shit together and come correct um Mm. in validating and recognizing the humanity of other people Mm. that i don't personally have like the tolerance level to hear people who have like historically had opportunity um but that's just me you know like some people have the the patience and wherewithal and drive to kind of do that work um i'm just not one of them no i mean i'm not capable of that either <laughs> like me personally it but no i i, get, I don't have the patience yeah i, I admire the the work he does yeah because i'm a results driven person so at yeah. some point i'm like if what we're doing on this side isn't working and this guy has been able to get people, I mean, there's, there's something to that. Yeah. Um, I would imagine those people live in silos. They probably don't. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you have news organizations or they might look at someone like me or yourself as, you know, elitist and we look down on them or whatever. And I feel like that further pushes them away from the understanding that I feel like, you know, poor people of color and poor um, white people are in the same boat, but like I think they're too busy debating their differences than to to realize like, hey, these policies hurt us in the same way. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I would say they're in the same boat. Maybe they're in parallel boats. Parallel boats. Yeah, <laughs> oh, of course, of course. But not exactly. No, the same but boat. yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I I agree. I think. You know, everyone, everyone in the world comes to the world with a different perspective, Mm -hmm. right? And so, and often our, like, the framework that we live in is, again, you know, like, going back to this idea of truth is what we believe. And if we're never told otherwise, except for in a, in a manner that we might consider to be offensive or condescending then yeah of course we're not going to you know we're not going to have a level of tolerance especially if we've been spoon-fed our whole lives like a a type of hatefulness or or 
discrimination forever. Mm-hmm. If you you know, it's like you don't know what you don't know. Of course. Until someone educates you. But I guess sort of my other thing in in response to the single guy convincing people one by one is that it's not like there aren't resources in the world for people to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think this comes to sort of like the root of a level of hubris in whiteness is the expectation that someone will spoon feed you. And if they don't, then it's like of no consequence. And I guess. Which I, I understand is. And it makes sense. Like, yeah, the I idea mean, that people have to chase you down and convince you. Right. There's a, a level of arrogance in that. Of yeah. Course. And I get. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the other thing to that is. The, the sort of flip side to that is when you're dealing with a certain mindset that of superiority, mm-hmm. um, there's never any incentive, I guess, to mm-hmm. like deconstruct or like unlearn that mindset. Mm-hmm. Like if you consider yourself to be at the top, why would you ever take the crown off yeah. your head? I yeah. I probably would. If I was a king of the world, yeah. I probably wouldn't. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, from from that perspective, like, of course, in the idea that you're forced. I mean, I've been in rooms where, I don't know, consciously or subconsciously, I felt the need to make other people feel comfortable mm-hmm. because of the way I carried myself. I've managed to. Yeah. I've managed to get away from that mostly now. I actually used. Uh, a drug reference in like a pitch meeting and <laughs> I had to like sit and explain. It was hilarious. And I've, I've worked with companies where I have to um, try my best to explain certain perspectives and mindsets in what they would, I guess, consider the urban market. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I, I I completely get where you're coming from, and the idea that you're forced to make people comfortable, even like um, the whole situation with um, you could compare that to the police officer situation, where it's like you have to make this trained individual, yeah, comfortable. Like this guy's trained, and you, uh, untrained citizen, has to somehow have the the state of mind to stay calm and make this person feel comfortable, right? To basically uh, untrain them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get your point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But on that, you know, on that topic of code switching, someone actually, a student asked me the other day, um, do you censor or tailor yourself depending on the room that you're in? And it was actually one of the more interesting questions that I've ever gotten in a Q&A and it kind of took me aback and I was like oh I actually I no longer do that it's something I did most of my life was um sort of adjust myself because I grew up in mostly white spaces um and fairly elite white spaces and so you know there's always a kind of like pivoting and navigating when to you know, kind of try as hard as possible to be one of them on a certain level or when to sort of like um, be distinctly other as like kind of as a defense mechanism or like a way to to navigate that space. Um, And it wasn't until very recently that I realized I don't do that anymore. 
because I came to the realization that opportunity is endless. Um, I don't know how it is in tech or other spaces, but in art and culture, we're often fed this idea that opportunity is really limited and finite. Um, and so we move out of this kind of like place of scarcity and, and sort of adjust ourselves to make sure we're always getting the next job or we don't lose out on an opportunity. But I think the reality is, is opportunity is whatever you make it and it exists infinitely. You just have to learn to be sort of like nimble and pivot and understand that maybe the exact thing you had in mind doesn't come to fruition, but then something else does. I think the going like in touching with the whole internet thing, I think that opened up opportunities people that wouldn't normally have because I think there was to a degree uh, a time when there were gatekeepers, so oh, yeah. to speak, you had to deal with. And if you didn't go through this person, you you didn't go. But yeah. uh, the barrier of entry now, um, whether it be media or, or art or tech or whatever, now you can go direct to consumer. You don't really have to deal with, right. you know what I mean? Like yeah, you don't have to deal with this, the pre-existing structure. Yeah. You don't have to have like backing from like a, a corporate entity or a record label, like, you know, from whatever. So yeah. I think that helps to a degree. Still um, at large, the people that make a lot of these financial decisions don't always, or most of the time they don't look like us. Oh yeah. So yeah. walking into a room... I mean, at times I did feel like I had to navigate things um, in tech, um, not especially, but tech is one of those things. And I would imagine it's everything where if you don't have the language mm -hmm. down packed, you could understand the concept. But if you don't have the language down packed, if you don't, I guess, carry yourself a certain way. Yeah. You could get penalized. It's, it's dope, too, because, I mean, tech is a little bit more casual. So, yeah. Um, now I show up to meetings in a hoodie and sweatpants. Yeah. I was also, doing that. Also pandemic way. life. Yeah. <laughs> but I was doing it like forever ago. I, um, once I got out of, um, once I quit my after college corporate job, I kind of told myself, yeah, I'm not really doing the suit thing anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to lean towards what makes me feel comfortable. And it, it was still a struggle even after that decision to sort of not code switch, um, I remember um, my corporate job. I'm not going to name the company, but <laughs> um, after I graduated, a lot of the guys that were under me were like older white guys. Mm -hmm. But, you know, me coming out of college and me having the connections I did was able to get like a um, account manager's job. I had people under me. Yeah. And so, on. so, I mean, I, that didn't go over well to some degree and little things. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the term microaggression for some reason, but um, I guess you could consider it that. I remember there was a day where there was like, there was a dance that was like going viral or whatever. Uh -huh. And I was in the office and they were like, Oh, Hey, do you know this dance? And I'm just like, like I'm why would a I? suit and I'm at work. Like you want me to bust out into a dance, like <laughs> in the middle of the office? Like what are we? But also, yeah. like, why, why, yeah, why necessarily would I know this yeah. dance? Yeah. So, like, you know, you laugh it off and you're like, huh, yeah, I'm good. And then you walk away. Yeah. Kind of like, what the fuck is this guy's problem? You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, now stuff like that is a little bit. I mean, we didn't talk about stuff like that then. It was just something you dealt yeah. with and you brushed off. Now it's more apparent. Um, 
at the same time, I, I feel like dealing with stuff like that gave me something. Yeah. And I don't know if us um, trying to sanitize the world to some degree takes something away from our kids or the next generation. I, yeah, no, I mean, I think you're hitting on something really important. First of all, us discussing it in this way, like our ability to choose whether or not we code switch is obviously from a point of privilege. Like both of yeah. us, you know, people tell me all the time, you talk like a white person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have an, an incredible amount of educational privilege and other privileges. And so I'm, you know, I'm able to make the decision about how I operate in the space in, in multiple spaces. And it's, um, and in some ways it's kind of part of who I have conscientiously st shaped myself as a like professional to be someone who is just sort of like unapologetically bombastic at times. Yeah. Um, not everyone can do that. And I think it is somewhat of an intellectual exercise to be like, yeah, we can, you know, we don't code switch when there are people who don't really have an option to do that or not to do that. Um, but it's interesting that you, you talk about sanitizing because I often think about this. Um, I don't have kids, but I think about even like the generations closest to us, how different their experiences are in dealing with certain things that I had to deal with that I know are now like part of open discourse. So like they won't necessarily have to deal with it at the same level or they won't have to deal with it sort of like silently in the way I did. And that's probably the same kind of thing that like my mother would say about my generation and so on and so forth. But um, I do think about that often is like how, how much are we creating spaces where, where people don't have to have those experiences and how that will impact them. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I think for me, it's like the negative experience I had. I don't consider them negative. They're just like part of who I am mm -hmm. now. They're all learning experiences. Um, so I don't know. I don't know Yeah. how that affects future generations. I think it's just something we have to like wait to see. I mean, unfortunately, um, and I guess this is another thing that I wanted to, I guess, talk to you about yeah. and kind of figure out the the whole quote unquote like me too movement. Mm -hmm. So when it initially happens, I have a mother, I have a sister, I have daughters. Um, this is a good thing. Like mm -hmm. I don't know any rational person that would say like no, there's maybe there's Harvey Weinstein, bad but yeah, yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> he's probably not a big fan. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. <laughs> yeah, he's probably not a big fan of um, the movement. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, a Hollywood executive that has all the power in the right, world. Right, right. Um, but then uh, certain things started coming out, and then I almost feel like it became uh, a, a caricature of mm -hmm. itself. Where it's just like now we're not focused on actual victims. Yeah. Where we're focused on like, you know, trying to catch headlines and whatever. And then the there, was, there was a, yeah, there was a degree of a power thing there. And I feel like 
any type of correction, like, you know, when the pendulum swings a certain direction, of course, there's going to be like this extreme reaction. But when it turns into a thing where now I remember when the Me Too thing first happened, I don't know if this is extreme reaction. I remember um, I had this is when it first happened. And I had like a a woman client come to the office and I was in the office alone. Mm-hmm. And as soon as she walked in, like subconsciously or consciously, or I don't know how, I immediately like sat like all the way across the yeah. room and I was just like, I want to make you super comfortable. I'm going to stand over here. Are you good? And yeah. she was kind of like, oh, are you, you're good? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm great. Like, you know. Right. Like, I just want to make sure you're yeah, great. I just yeah, want to make all, sure you're cool. All... I want to make sure everybody's, everybody's cool. Do you want to, yeah. do you want me to bring somebody in here? So yeah, you're not yeah. alone with a guy. Like it just, I became like hyper aware of whatever. And it's not like. I thought like somehow I was going to like accidentally rape somebody. You know right. what I mean? Like, oh my God, like I, <laughs> right. I don't know how this happened. But at the same time, you get nervous because um even people that want to be allies kind of like step back. I don't know if you remember, um, there was a Ben Affleck had had came out against like, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm, Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein yeah. and sacking people and so on and so forth. And as soon as he said something, like some woman had came out and it was like 20 years ago, you grabbed my boob. Yeah. He was like, whoops. Like, well, I'm out. Yeah. Like, yeah. and he, he kind of fell back. And I was just like, when you don't, unfortunately, when you have a movement that doesn't have allies on the other side, you kind of get to a place where, again, you're in this silo and yeah. then you're just talking to people that think like you and it just goes off the rails. Yeah. So I think when the, the sort of movement began, which, you know, honestly wasn't that long ago. We're talking about what, 2016, 2015, 2016, maybe yeah. later than that. Um, I think the immediate uh, sort of surprise of that happening in such a, a rapidly growing way um, created a lot of tension. And again, I, I think you already said it pretty well with any sort of extreme social pendulum swing um, or one that feels in the mainstream to be extreme in that moment, even if it has been sort of building up over time in small circles, um, causes a lot of chaos because people, you know, people, of course, start to think about like, oh, what have I done? Um, I wasn't aware that I was doing something problematic or am I doing something problematic now? And without sort of really nuanced and open discourse over time, it's hard, it's hard to navigate those spaces because no one really knows. And so I think, you know, there are obviously certain cases that are very cut and dry, Harvey Weinstein being one of them, you know, to sort of like go off of a, a well-known one. But then there are always things that fall into a kind of gray area that, you know, I'm not saying that they remain gray, but they have to be sorted through. And I think... So you're talking more like... Um, like I, Aziz I Ansari, for example. That was actually a great example. Yeah. yeah. Um, is, you know, there are questions of, in that particular instance of like, was there coercion happening? Is the woman lying? Is Aziz Ansari lying? Um, is this all rooted in like the perspective of each individual? And unfortunately, there's no cut and dry answer. 
And I think the only thing that we can really reasonably do is to continue talking about it and know that there might not necessarily be like a, a answer that's well wrapped up with a, a ribbon well, at the end. Well, from your point of view or your perspective, I know there's a set definition, but in this um, instance, what does co- coercion mean? So this is, you know, it's a, a kind of tricky thing for me to say because everything that I... Because a lot of guys, in their minds, it's my job to sort of court and convince a woman right. to sleep with me. So now you're right. telling me convincing someone... And this is like the perspective I've heard. <laughs> now you're telling me convincing someone to sleep with me is bad. It's right. so like, well, how do I get them to? Right, right, yeah. right. And that's, you know, that's where like for our generation, there's like unlearning and relearning and for future generations thinking about how to like teach children about like consent and all of these things. But like for us in the now, yeah, and it's like, how do you define that? So from my perspective yeah. in that situation, it's hard for me to say definitively because everything that I know is the same thing that every other like yeah. person knows based I on celebrity. I used to hit on girls, so now I'm right. thinking back, like, like, was I like... <laughs> but it's all I based on yeah. like celebrity gossip. Like I read um, the person who accused him. I read her... It, it actually wasn't even in her voice. It was an article written by someone who she had relayed the story to. So it's not like she like wrote a statement. Mm -hmm. She told someone else that person published an article. Um, And then uh, what I know over the response was what Aziz Ansari said publicly, but, you know, based purely on public perception, I think, you know, was, did he coerce her into something? I don't know. Um, But, the way I saw his apology publicly seemed fairly genuine. Um, it, he seemed sort of befuddled at the idea that he had coerced someone. And I mm-hmm. think that is the the unresolvable part because in his mind, no, he didn't. She was consenting. And in her mind, she was like, I was pushed into consenting to this. And so I don't think there's... Uh. You know, I'm sort of like, I don't, I'm not really team anyone. I have no, yeah. I have no skin in I mean, this game. The, but as a as a man and as a black man, it like it was a lot of perspectives for me. So yeah, um, one thing that uh, I'm going to touch on the season sorry thing in a second, but I remember um, initially having like a really negative reaction to um chelsea handler who i don't have any issue with. i don't even know or whatever chelsea, but uh-huh, uh-huh. she's a comedian yeah, yeah. no i know and who she is but I'm trying she to said um women should automatically be believed automatically mm. and to me i was initially like so we're just getting rid of like innocent until proven guilty it's just because like my first reaction was like they believe the woman who accused Emmett Till, and that didn't really mm-hmm. work out great for him. And as a black man, generally, when uh, a white woman says, "Hey, he did this," yeah, it's sort of like a lot of red flags, yeah, until proven innocent. And then even after your innocence is proven, there's no like you're a, you're a pariah. recourse. That's yeah. it. Like you're still an accused rapist. Like mm-hmm. they can prove that you were innocent, so on and so forth. The person who accused you has no 
like there's no consequences or anything. She yeah. can go on with her life. It's just sort of like, well, you know, oops. And she goes on and does whatever. And right. now you have this label on you for the rest of your life. Uh, for example, like the, and he's probably not the best example of um, anything involving women in this case, but the recent situation with Chris Brown and his accuser. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the Aziz Ansari thing, it was complicated to me, and maybe that's um, my own limited understanding of the idea of coercion, because um, coercion to me um, was like something like, I don't know if you ever watched the show, it's Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. But there was an episode where Dennis and them bought a boat, and he was talking to Mac, and he was like, the the implication yeah. of being out on the water, and they can't say no, because how are they getting back? Right. Like, that sort of, right. in my mind, I was like, that's coercion. Like, right. they don't really feel like a way out. You're cornering a woman. Whereas in the Aziz Ansari situation, from what I understand the situation, and I admittedly didn't read the article, and I don't really care about, like, it's not like I'm an Aziz Ansari fan or yeah. anything. But um, he went out on a date with a woman. Mm -hmm. um, she sort of documented the date, which is kind of weird initially. Like, who's documenting, like, taking pictures of the wine glass and the dinner plate or whatever? So, I mean, I don't know what her intention was from the beginning. It's just yeah. like a setup type of thing. They engage in um, sexual relations. I don't know what happens. I'm not in the room. And... Um, as soon as she decides, hey, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. He immediately stops and removes himself. And they kind of hang out naked for a while, which is... <laughs> as, as one does sometimes, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Which is sort of confusing. So a guy in this situation, I'm kind of confused also. So it's like, why are we still nude? Shouldn't we get dressed? Like, why are you still right. here? Like, I'm... Like, I don't know how to proceed. He's a celebrity. There's so much more for him to lose, so many more um, minds for him to walk on. And then now the idea that now he has to go away without, there's no conversation, no one's discussing right. anything. He automatically has to go away. It's like, is that right? Does someone have to not be able to make a living? I mean, fortunately for him, he already had a ton of money, but what if it was someone who wasn't as right. financially stable? Um, I don't know. It's it's tricky. I mean, I I'm happy that my daughter's going to grow up in a world where there are consequences and people will think twice before doing something like that to them. But like, I mean, yeah, I I also don't want um like nephews or cousins or something to possibly be accused of something they didn't do or weren't like yeah. properly educated on. I think you you know the thing I think. And I agree with you. I think there are a lot of complications. Um, my interpretation based on the information I have is there was really probably no malintent on either side. And yeah. we're also talking about a few years ago when it still was this like very either That's you're terrible yeah. or you're acceptable. No middle ground. Um, and I also, you know, think that there was absolutely a racialized element. Yeah. In that, which, um, you know, a lot of uh, women friends of mine who are um, sexual justice advocates got got on me about it. But, you know, I think it's telling that certain celebrities are um, penalized for things that fall into a gray area, whereas other ones aren't. Yeah. You know, it's like there are a lot of... Um, 
in you know in in Hollywood or in celebrity culture, even my own experience, a lot of like white guys with high amounts of hubris who think they can do whatever they want, who are never penalized for the things that they do. Um, and then the instances that we pick out, and this is not to be sort of like an apologist for anyone, but it is notable that instances that we pick out and choose to vilify in our culture are often people of color. Um, and I guess that is for a variety of reasons, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I thought the same thing when, you know, like why Aziz Ansari and why not like there are a hundred other, you know, like. For some White reason, your, your guilt is assumed, and I think it just, the the story was just this whole thing. And I mean, the idea that, I don't know, I and I might be wrong, but the idea that someone can, um, and not specifically in the Unzees and Sorry situation, but I've heard people have these conversations, someone can retroactively say no mm. is crazy. And it's scary because it's like someone can consent in the moment and then a week later say, you know what? I don't think I really wanted to do that. And then now all of a sudden you're like, well, I thought you like, I can't go back in time. I can't change anything. Right. So now like I'm maybe I'm old fashioned. So now sex has to turn into this business transaction where before we go anywhere, (laughs) I have to sign a contract. This contract where it's like. Before we go any further, um, I have this contract here. So you, you, it conjures up these these images of glasses of wine and a clipboard. <laughs> You're right. The, you know. I mean, I think that that's sort of like the unfortunate inconvenience of our generation being in that like sort of funny space where many of us have grown up. You know, people who are, I guess, for millennials um, or old millennials. I'm an old millennial. Yeah. Um, grown up with these conversations happening, mm-hmm. but only to a limited extent that's much m- was much more limited than the conversations that are being had now. And so mm-hmm. it's like, again, to the idea, you only know what you know. And it's like, part of this is the uncomfortable learning that has to happen. But I agree with you that, you know, it's a, it's a kind of coming to terms on both sides. Like, mm-hmm. I think it is, it, it's really in my mind, and again, I, there's no blanket statement that I can make, but I'm going to attempt to make one that making decisions retroactively is a hard, it's a hard pill for me to swallow mm-hmm. to say, you know, in a moment you were with it and then afterwards you regret it. And again, it's like it, when you have fully consented something, I don't know. It's, mm-hmm. you know, what do you do with that? What does anyone do with that? I mean, I've been in. That doesn't, I mean, in, that doesn't invalidate oh, no, someone course. saying like, oh, yeah. I regret an, an experience that I've had. But I guess the, the question is, besides putting that information out there, then what is to be done with it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've I've been made to feel uncomfortable in spaces. I could definitely um, sympathize with women. And to be honest, if this is sort of. And I'm speaking from a point of view of someone who's not dealing with the consequences of that. So there's a kind of, you know, I doubt people like, I don't know, like Jeremy Piven or Aziz Ansari or whoever would agree with me. But, um, yeah, like, it happens. I mean, I think women have dealt with uh, extreme to a certain point where they kind of had to deal with a lot of this shit for a really long time. So if we kind of have to be uncomfortable for a little bit, like should we get to bitch about it 
I mean, no, I mean, um, you, you can bitch about whatever you want. Yeah, I know, I mean, but like all, at the same time, it's all time, uncomfortable. At large, is it better for society? I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I would assume so. And again, I, I hope it, it was a learning experience at the very least of people kind of thinking twice about the way they engage with, with women and so on and so forth. A friend yeah. of mine once told me a story about a guy that followed her mm-hmm. like for a couple of blocks after she left a club or something, he bought her a drink and how like terrifying that was. Yeah. And I'm like, that's insane that yeah. you would have to deal with that. And like women deal with stuff like this, I would imagine all the time. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully this leads to less stuff like that happening yeah yeah i mean sort of to close the loop on it when me too was really sort of at its starting point i had a lot of male male identified friends say to me i had no idea that this was like the kind of bullshit that you dealt with and i was like yeah and for me it's so even for me the me too movement was a learning experience because you know, you want to talk about retroactive things. There were so many things that I had always just been like, this is just how it is. Like, you know, men are shitty. You just deal with it and you keep it moving the best you can. And then as that stuff started to come out, I was like, oh, actually, some of these things were extremely problematic. And I just didn't have the reassessing like past right. experiences. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah. Um you know, I guess it's like I sound like a broken record, but it's like yeah. you don't know what you it's, don't know yeah. until you know it. Yeah. So um, I'm going to use that to sort of pivot into, I guess, uh, a space that has a little bit more, I guess, so to speak, landmines. And it's a little bit more okay. um, extreme. And I will admit um, I might be less educated in this space, but I mean, I've been. uh in a lot of conversations about it. And um, I'll start from the point where I think a lot of people started um, the comedian Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. So um, Dave Chappelle came out and to a lot of African-Americans and people of color, whatever, Dave Chappelle is almost like this folk hero Mm -hmm. because he walked away from the show and all this money a long time ago. And he's always been like sort of this example of like integrity Mm -hmm. and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. So Dave came out and he came with a couple of comedy specials. And I mean, there's a bunch of conversations that could come out of this, whether it's free speech or whatever. But uh, he made uh, some jokes that I guess angered. um, I don't know if it would necessarily be like the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. community or the transgender community or how to phrase that exactly. And um, I don't know if you had like an initial take on that. I don't know if you saw the special. Um, like, what were your initial reactions to the to the joke in itself? And yeah, whether or not jokes have limits, I guess, is a thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. So, admittedly, I didn't watch the whole specials, and that's mostly because I have a very low attention span <laughs> to okay. watch anything yeah. on TV. So, I've seen I've seen clips of it. Um, did I think what he said was problematic and offensive? I do. Um, do I think that 
Netflix should have pulled his specials. Um, I guess I'm of, of kind of two minds. Um, and I, I'm sort of always of multiple minds on things because there's so many perspectives that one could come from. But in, I guess on, on one hand, I wish that he had acknowledged in sort of like a genuine apology um, and said, yes, I'm a comedian, but also I can understand um, where this crossed the line for a community of people because it is insulting an entire entire community. Um, and simply acknowledging that, I think, is a good start. I think when people really dig their heels in um, to kind of assert that they did nothing wrong, it it never goes well for them because mm-hmm. it's, it's, again, a sign of hubris. Um, and I think, you know, when you hurt people, you should have humility in acknowledging that you've hurt them. Yeah. Um, even if you're still going to continue doing the jokes, at least mm-hmm. you can acknowledge that you yeah. understand the the feedback. Um, and as to Netflix canceling it, I guess where my mind is, is I don't know. Um, I don't really expect corporations ever to do anything that's outside of their bottom line best mm-hmm. interest. Um, obviously, any press is good press to a certain extent for major media corporations. So like as the controversy unfolded more people watched netflix more people paid attention to netflix a lot of people left yes but a lot of people also engaged further um i think about that in the same way i think about like the donald trump machine a tangent but like who benefited the most fiscally off of the trump presidency probably the left-wing media yeah because they had Gave them content all the time. To I mean, talk about it, yeah. Exactly. Four or six years. Of... I feel like they, they loved it to a degree because it's like, it's of all anyone it. talked about. It's all anyone talked about. Ratings are sky high because mm. even if people are hate watching, they're still mm. watching. Yeah. Um, and so I have, I'm ye of little faith when it comes to sort of like the moral and ethic barometer of corporations because they have a more, yeah. you know, they have a bottom line. So the question of free speech, I mean, again, I might personally not watch Dave Chappelle and I, you know, would hope and kind of expect that as as someone um, who comes from other intersections that are oppressed could recognize the kind of impact their language would have. Mm -hmm. Um, But am I going to be like Dave Chappelle should go like live in a cave somewhere for the rest of his life no well um dave Chappelle's last special he actually addressed the whole thing um i think he felt misunderstood in the jokes and it's difficult because a lot of person like a lot of people i've had these conversations with um and unlike you like i know the whole short attention span and um it's funny because <laughs> i was talking to my kids about it the other day tiktok has ruined watching movies or anything yeah 10 minutes into the movie they're like but what's happening like yeah just tell me the end of the movie (laughs) um dave Chappelle um made these jokes and i think um his jokes from his perspective spoke to um privilege Mm -hmm. so i think he was more so um 
the part of the joke was um he was talking about the LGBTQ community and then the um the discriminate the discrimination within that community was mm-hmm, the initial mm-hmm. joke. And um he also referenced the fact that um this this community almost in his mind took precedence over what he felt were like maybe in his mind more pressing issues. Mm-hmm. I guess that was the um the joke he made um about I guess because uh, I think it was reference, and I'm gonna butcher the joke, but he made a joke about a black man having to put on heels to feel safer or something like that. Right. Um, I get how the joke would would offend. He later on, and um, to put this in a context, he later on in his last special basically said, um, and I'm paraphrasing that offense wasn't his intent, and until he's at a point where he feels like um everyone is laughing at these jokes he he's going to just stop doing them. Mm. And he said this in his last special yeah. because i i think more so the way i took it was he wasn't really attacking the lgbtq community as much as criticizing um the elitist part of it where it was just like gay white males mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and the idea behind the the transgender thing and then i know there's a whole like argument behind the term turf which i'm going to ask you about in mm-hmm. a second but um it it is funny that um when something happens and uh we'll say they're fascinated by someone like um, Caitlyn Jenner's opinion on something. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to be careful there because I almost um, misgendered her. Uh-huh. In a, uh, um, and then you look at the the end of it where um, black transgender people fall through the cracks and no one cares. Like a million yeah. of them can disappear and no one blinks an eye. Right. There is something to be said about the the contradiction there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think my understanding, and again, as like someone who didn't watch and only sort of has Mm. that sort of segment of the story, is that the out, a lot of the outrage lay in that particular joke in the non acknowledgement of how many black trans women are murdered and, um, and we never hear about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the the ones we hear about are few and far between and, you know, and they're only a sort of small segment um, of part of a larger systemic issue. So I can't really speak to the rest of it. But um, again, I think that that is his gaffe that, um, you know, he speaks to an audience. He had a really he has a really large platform. Um, and so, you know. A lot of those jokes that are, his jokes aren't for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any comedian has jokes that are for everyone that don't hurt someone. Um, and so that's me trying to be objective about it mm-hmm. as someone who does have trans friends of trans femme friends and non-binary friends um, who are of every race. Um, I found it offensive mm-hmm. um but again i don't i don't think it's something that i would say 
you know, he should never speak uh, again. Um, I, yeah. I, I think the people have made um, gay and trans jokes for a, a while now and so on and so forth. Um, I think people change their manner of thinking from like um, Eddie Murphy made like a joke, like I don't know how many years ago Raw Delirious was mm-hmm. that he couldn't perform now. Right. But um, I'm sure in the span of time since he's made that joke, he's been educated and he's sort of maybe right. addressed some of that. Um, I don't know if I feel like comedians should be censored. I feel like all jokes to some degree come from the same place, not yeah. malice, but to make people laugh and someone, and maybe the comedian's perspective on things. There are people that argue that in the, from the point of view of the whole equality thing, if everybody's being made fun of, then it should be okay. Equal, equal opportunity discrimination. Yeah, basically, yeah, like yeah, if, yeah. if he's making jokes about everybody, then should should um, any group be left out or be more protected than another one? Right. Yeah. Because an Asian person can hear a joke and be just as offended, yeah. or a black person, or or whatever. Yeah. Uh, no, I I agree with you, which is why I think you know it's hard. It on multiple levels, it's hard to say that someone should be just like tossed out or censored because mm-hmm. censorship is a really slippery slope. Mm-hmm. You know, you do one thing, then where do you draw the line at not just mm-hmm. picking out what you do, which is why it's, you know, again, up to individual um, choice making or even at a collective level group, you know, groups of people who just won't patronize that person anymore. Yeah, I feel like the market to some degree will dictate things like it's funny when people that don't patronize you to begin with say they're going to stop patron like it doesn't really affect anything right you're you're canceling someone that you weren't going to buy tickets to their show or whatever it was anyway right um i do think though that backlash even though it's very painful for the people it's against in the moment can actually lead to discourse that leads to change long term it's just it's slow yeah. I mean, I think it's it's good to have these conversations. And I mean, I think comedians role in society to some degree, besides making people laugh, is to make people uncomfortable and make people think about things that they normally wouldn't think about or face or, or yeah. whatever. Like, I mean, in polite society, most people aren't going to have those types of conversations. Right. I mean, that's from a place of discomfort is often where laughter comes from because yeah. it, you know it's like we feel awkward so we yeah. laugh or i i know people that have gone through things so like uh for example if if you have a family member that died from cancer mm-hmm. a cancer joke might feel different to you yeah. than someone else like i mean your experiences whatever but it's just like i don't know like if you laughed when he made jokes about other people should you then now be like oh like we have to draw the line when it comes to my offense i feel like offense is such a subjective thing it's yeah. tricky to figure out how to because there are people that for example um there was a, a online debate between i consume a lot of media by the way <laughs> um there was an online debate between uh this uh this gay activist and um piers morgan 
Mm-hmm. And the gay activists continued to refer as peer, to Piers as a cisgender male. And Piers said, no, I'm just a male. Mm-hmm. And you calling me cisgendered is offending me. <laughs> Why does your offense take precedence over mine? He was offended that someone was calling him a cisgendered. Male? Yeah, because he didn't want to be referred to that as a, as a term. And he, I guess, was making the um the comparison to someone being misgendered for example but he is a cisgendered male but he doesn't (laughs) he doesn't subscribe to that term cisgendered he just subscribes to being a male he said the cisgender thing is new and someone assigned that to him and he never agreed he never he never consented to yeah basically but does he does he i guess the question is like did he have an alternative to propose male he just okay i'm a male and for thousands of years, this is how we were referred. Uh-huh. And now you're you're calling me cisgendered male, basically implying that there there are other types of males, which he may or may not agree to. Right. So he basically said, well, I don't want to be called that, but you continue to refer to me in that way. And it's offending me. <laughs> Why does your offense take precedence over mine? Well, I'm guessing that the activist was probably doing that to make a point. That, you know, that's like, you know, trans people are misgendered mm-hmm. all day, every day. Yeah. Um, and you asked about TERFs before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we were. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, I, I having not seen it, but I'm assuming that was like to make a point. I'm going to send you all um, of these links. <laughs> you know, it's like cisgender is not a pejorative. It's a yeah. a biological categorization of someone. And it's like. Yeah. scientifically but offense is subjective right yeah of course right. it's subjective but i guess you know that point was probably being made because a lot of people will go up to um a trans woman and say oh you're if that person identifies and just wants to be referred to as woman people say oh no you're a trans woman mm-hmm. or or sometimes we'll be like no you're a man mm-hmm. and you know i think that level that sort of uh systemic relentless kind of misgendering um happens so prevalently that my guess is he was just trying to make a point that that that's our experience you it know, would like- be cool if it was that nuanced <laughs> the guy that they co- they constantly invite to the show is not great at arguing his point okay. so it actually hurts the argument more so that he's the i guess representative right because the whole time i'm not even like uh i guess a representative of that community but the whole time i'm like dude that's a horrible argument like yeah i've had enough conversations where i'm like you could have explained that better yeah i mean in mainstream media it's it's hard to convey nuance if if he was trying to make a subversive point he Mm. probably should have said that Mm. um Mm. and but i do i i think that um the level of um, discomfort or objection that someone like Piers Morgan would have to someone referring to them by pronouns that they haven't elected is just like demonstrating a point that millions of people deal with all the time. But to to his point in terms of like uh, offense, Mm -hmm. once we've gotten into the 
I mean, there's a big difference between policy and like, you know, just societal behavior, everyday stuff. Right. You can enforce policy to some degree, but you can't really enforce the way people speak and behave and so on and so forth. So uh, I think you have a lot of people that it splinters into, I think the, the, the basis of the conversation more so wasn't transgender people because there was a transgender person on the panel. And, um, I guess I, I wasn't aware of this or this is what he said. Pierce Morgan is actually like this big advocate for, for that community and defending them. So on and so forth. I think it was more so the confusion of the bi the non-binary and mm -hmm. all of these new pronouns that I think there's like a hundred mm -hmm. of these pronouns. And he was sort of like, it's in his mind, it's sort of ridiculous. And it's, if anything, hurting the community because it's making it less, I guess, accessible to like everyday people. Yeah. But I guess the question of accessibility to everyday people is like, that's everyone else's problem, yeah. right? Like if we were if we were to say that we wanted to make people comfortable all the time, then you and I wouldn't be sitting at this table. No, Let's put uh, it that, 100 and, that 110 way. So yeah, like, 110 percent. You know, and yeah. I, I I think that argument, his argument, is like it's a very old fashioned way of thinking, and it's either you get with the program or you don't. You know, it's like language is malleable; it's constantly mm -hmm. evolving. Um, is it tricky to keep up with? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, to... I feel like the average person is probably not going to run into this problem anyways. Like, I think um, most of this is being discussed and debated in spaces that are, like, most people would consider elitist. Like, this is in academia, for example. This is a big thing. But, you know, the everyday person isn't really dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I think, well... Everyday people, I don't think there is such a, a thing as an everyday person because there's so many communities that like go into making up people collectively. Mm -hmm. um, it it all depends on the communities you you run with. You Which know, it's like for for me, new gendered terms are like part of my everyday discourse and link and and sort of like lingo. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that is necessarily because I'm an elitist in an elitist space or because I just am part of many queer spaces. Yeah. Um, so it really, you know, it depends on who your communities are. Cause I mean, I think to some degree, the transgender thing, people could wrap their mind around, you know what I mean? It's like you were born one gender. Uh, I don't know. A lot of people, I think outside of the Northeast coast, identifying as transgender is not is often met with like violence um it's yeah. you know it's outside of of major metropolitan areas that um that people are not still in in 2022 are not open to it or about it and there's yeah. like a lot of of um of violence and and hatred um and discrimination People are going to fight change. I mean, it's just one of those things. It, yeah. Change makes people uncomfortable. They don't understand it. People are always going to react to what they don't understand. And unfortunately, when it comes to, I, I guess, men growing up, like there's only a handful of emotions that are like socially acceptable or promoted as as a guy. So fear 
turns into anger. Like sadness turns into anger, embarrassment turns into anger. So right. many things turn into anger and then results in like it manifests into physical whatever. Yeah, which is I think it's a yeah. problem. Um but like for the most part, a lot of the people that having issues with this, I guess, can can be considered like academics or whatever. For the most part, these are people who are having these public public conversations about it. And I think um I guess people wrapping their minds around I was born one gender and now I'm another gender and people sort of making the the difference uh between sex and gender is a a thing. Um people sort of like, wrapping their mind around you deciding that not you in particular, but generally that you're genderless or you're uh non binary or whatever, I think is more so now the Hey, we just got used to the transgender <laughs> thing and you guys are switching up. It's like I think that's more so the the reaction. Again, I'm from the school of thought of if it doesn't really directly affect me, whatever you want to be referred to, you can right. walk in here and tell me to call you whatever. I'm like, oh cool, like whatever. And then right. go ahead. It doesn't really impact my life. Now, one thing that I did form an opinion about to a degree I wanted to get your thoughts on was um, the sports space, which is where the the conversation sort of becomes a little bit more, I guess, I don't want to say practical, but people feel a lot more strongly about it. Mm -hmm. And there was a swimmer. I, I don't want to misgender or say this person's name improperly, but there was yeah. a swimmer who was... Um, genetically born male mm -hmm. who transitioned is now uh, a woman mm -hmm. and was competing prior to the transition in swimming mm -hmm. and now is competing and i think this reaches i think this touches on the turf conversation we're having before uh it's now competing against women and um people are objecting to this because this person when competing against um biological males was ranked somewhere in the 400th percentile or something and now this person is breaking records competing against um people that were born genetically i'm trying to navigate this yeah, yeah. people who were born genetically uh female and um, yeah, both sides females, have yeah. strong opinions about it um, want to see if you had thoughts one way or another. Um, so as I think a lot of people form opinions, including myself without knowing the biological realities. So like, mm -hmm. I can't really say what, um, testosterone suppressants or hormone or like estrogen enhancements do um for from my understanding once uh, a person has reached puberty regardless of um i've done research on this prior to the conversation um regardless of um any type of um i guess hormone therapy or whatever there are still um physical advantages that aren't going to go away True, but then I think maybe it needs to be a reexamination of the entire structure of sports and the Olympics because really one could make the same, a very similar argument for um, cis female athletes who have, um, who have, what is the, who basically overproduce testosterone. Yeah. Um, 
who, which is basically overproducing male hormones. So mm-hmm. you could make the argument that they have an advantage mm-hmm. within their like gender classification in the Olympics. And so mm-hmm. it's the question is like, where do you draw the line? Are you going to test everyone's like hormonal levels before they compete? Or are you just going to say that uh-huh. gender at a certain point has to become mm-hmm. irrelevant and there needs to be sort of like a better system? Do you need a third category for Olympic competitions? Yeah, I, I was sort of I leaning. I was sort of leaning towards the third category only because it's so there. There are going to be like biological differences. Like obviously, someone like LeBron James won the the genetic lottery in terms of his his, <laughs> right, his, his about athleticism. You know what I mean? But. Um, One thing I want to say is that we also, you know, when this person was performing in like the 400th percentile, us as just like spectators, we don't know why that was. We don't know if there's necessarily a correlation between their transition and their performance at the Mm -hmm. sport. You know, who knows? Maybe they were at the time they were um, swimming in the male swimming category, they weren't taking estrogen. You know, well, it's it's hard to say, but I think mm-hmm. that the issue of gender is like, we put so much stock into gender as a dividing line, mm-hmm. particularly in sports. And we do it also when, when it comes to like, bund- not bund- <laughs> borders and national allegiances, which is like a whole other thing. We're so rigid with these structures that we don't, leave room for other possibility well i think in in sports specifically the the issue in the the conversation sort of i guess in terms of and again navigating this is tricky um when you have a a situation where um people that transition are whether it's swimming in this case they there was also a conversation about uh uh, um, a transgender person in uh, mixed martial arts who, mm-hmm. again, decidedly, like, you know, very, like, um, where he was beating, or she, sorry, she was beating women. Mm-hmm. And um, you have uh, a weightlifter who is breaking all of these records. I wonder if by creating room and space for um uh, a class of people that of course are definitely discriminated against and and are are hurt and are marginalized by society you sort of start to do that to women who now in their own safe spaces have to sort of accept like for example um whether you agree with the award or not um a lot of people weren't fans of um Caitlyn Jenner winning i guess woman of the year award or something like that because it was sort of like well you you've only been a woman for a year and to a lot of people it was sort of like the idea that somehow um white male privilege extends to this as well now you're a better woman than someone who's been dealing with these issues their whole lives became like a, a yeah. issue 
I mean, I think, well, Caitlyn Jenner is a very yeah, special, that's a, that's a exceptional special case. case. Yeah. But to the question of, again, of sports, um, and I'm trying to think of the athlete's name. Um, but I guess my, my sort of argument against the third category is, is that, again, there are a lot of cis female competitive athletes who would have similar um, biological compositions that would, in theory, give them an advantage mm-hmm. against other cis women. And mm-hmm. so if we didn't know that these athletes... I know athletes, the, the athlete you're talking about, yeah, by the way. And they said, basically, like, she couldn't compete. Yeah. Um, if... And it's embarrassing that I can't remember the name because I actually read quite a bit about it. But, um, you know, if we if you didn't know that certain athletes were trans, would we even be having this conversation? If we just accepted from jump that this person was a female competitor competing in female competitions all the time and we never knew that they were born cis male would we be having this conversation but i think the probably not the the conversation also i guess goes to fairness because um it'd be one conversation if you're talking about someone who i guess um very early on got the hormone therapy and wasn't really their um i guess puberty was like interrupted right and they don't have these advantages um i guess um, one of the comparisons they made it to was um I guess a while back and someone feel free to correct me on this. Um, the Soviet union was dosing a lot of their athletes with testosterone and so on and so forth. And, um, they were doing this at very young age and sort of having these, these women develop in like ways that I guess men would usually develop going through puberty. Um, if, if you're talking about such a small, population so um and again my numbers might be wrong they're saying um transgender people might be somewhere of like a fraction of a percent of the population maybe yeah i don't um i'm not sure should the whole idea of sports change for such a small percentage of of people or then do you create a space where they can continue to compete or do they accept that this transition just comes with the the sacrifice of being able to com- compete competitively in in this sport? Um, you have a situation like I mean, there's I, discrimination in terms of uh, a connotation at large is negative, but discrimination just means you can't do this, like um, right women's bathrooms discriminate against men using them to a degree do you feel like maybe this is just one of those things that again as as a a woman and i i understand the 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 word turf is a pejorative like yeah 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 yeah. people who are I guess, who consider themselves feminists, defending the idea that, I mean, women still need to be defended in those spaces. And I think anyone could argue everyone needs to be protected to some degree. At what point 
and I'm trying to hear this again. At what point does one person's rights or what they believe to be their rights um, supersede someone else's? Right. I mean, I guess I I hold hard to the idea that trans women are are women, even if there's a biological difference. I think there's too few trans women in sports and there are other women again with you know like high less female hormone more male hormone who participate i mean the pool that we're talking about is so small as it is yeah that it's really hard to say unequivocally that it is because they're trans that they have an advantage and so you know i'm maybe to the detriment of other cis women but like Mm -hmm shit life's unfair compete to the best that you can with other people who are competing to the best that they can Mm -hmm. that's it is what it is you can't choose we can't choose in some instances to acknowledge the womanhood of trans women and then in other instances choose not to you know it's like these are people's identities that we're talking about Uh, no of course um like i think more so like the the thing of fairness of the and please correct me if i'm wrong here the um definition of trans has expanded Mm -hmm. to not just someone who actually goes through the act of transitioning but to someone who just innately feels um transgendered so right who live yeah 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 so if um i i think to some degree you you want to respect people's feelings and you want to respect rights and so on and so forth but from a logistical perspective, I I can get how someone can feel that, hey, um, you, uh, at the very least, um, portrayed yourself to be a cisgendered male for 30 years of your life. Yeah. And now that you're coming out, you feel the, the freedom to do so. Like, you know, everyone would applaud that. No one wants anyone to suffer in silence. And, um, I know suicide is prevalent in that community. Like, no one wants anyone to hurt themselves. You have loved ones that care about you. You have people that don't want anyone to get hurt. Yeah. That being said, at that point, the idea that you can go and compete, I can see why a lot of people would feel like that's yeah. unfair. No, I can I can see yeah. why people would think it was yeah. unfair, but... Because even the, the African-American women who, in this case, and I think they were born in africa so i don't want to say american yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. african women in this case who were ejected from the game people were saying that like just as a, a thing like you're just a, you have an unfair advantage because of this um this condition you have and i guess my argument yeah. is like that's all of sports right like that is someone sports, is going to have an advantage a, valid, a genetic advantage yeah. in, in many cases yeah. which so. is which is valid but i mean yeah, it's it's a valid point that you can't argue that, except for any type of combat sport. Like you can't really argue that. Yeah, but like okay, you talk about basketball. Like yeah. I would say certain players are really good because they have a particular biological advantage to like yeah. me who yeah. can't play for shit. And yeah. that's like yes, there's training. Yes, there's there's a whole bunch of things that go into the mix. But um, I think the argument. Sports about, at its core is just unfair innately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the argument about gender-specific genetics is like, okay, but then you need to parse apart every other aspect of, of genetic 
advantage in sports? It's such a complicated thing. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer. I feel like someone smarter than me is supposed to figure all this out because I, I don't know. I can't really speak to the answer. And I mean, it's a valid argument. Sports yeah. in it at its core is. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the basis of, yeah. of sports. And, you know, like our, our rules and regulations around it are sometimes what work, yeah. um, work in such a way that they create a, a system in opposition of what they're supposed to be doing yeah. right it's like they it yeah. they do the opposite thing of, of what they're meant to do um but yeah i mean none of it none of it is yeah, like easy to to figure mm-hmm. out and we are sort of at the generational helm of figuring it out um yeah. and so it probably will never like it will never be clear for us because at this point we're we're old and washed it's at this point it's (laughs) we're behind the time yeah i'm i'm accepting that to a degree (laughs) now it's it's hard to wrap your arms around that but um the i know everyone everyone is offended at everything now recreation to some degree i mean uh offense to some degree is recreational on some certain levels Mm -hmm. like online especially um yeah, everyone's pissed off at everybody else. So I mean, like it it it's sad that like issues that genuinely need to be figured out um kind of become sensationalized and then nothing really gets figured out. So Yeah, I mean I think that's maybe a, a good point yeah. to sort of because I think the everyday, um, and I know we we discuss that term, but I mean the the trans person who's just on the street figuring things out. I don't know if that person necessarily gives a fuck. They just want to live yeah. and and work and exist in a space where they don't feel like they're going to be harassed or killed or, or hurt. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess sort of a, a good closing place yeah. um, is. The thing that I find really difficult, excuse me, about sort of cancel culture and and the state of like everyone being offended all the time is that it really doesn't leave room for important conversations like this to happen because everyone is continuously on the defensive and not open to really listening and having dialogue that can be actually progressive. Mm-hmm. Um it's just, you know, and I do this too. I feel very like s- stuck in the sense that like, oh, what I'm saying is right. And then, you know, oftentimes people call me out, but it's hard to be called out. Yeah. And it's even harder, I think, to then have conversations that are difficult and meaningful. And it's yeah. like, that's the heart, you know, that requires work. And, you know, I don't want to say people are lazy but people are lazy, are lazy. Yeah. <laughs> so they are it's yeah. it's much easier to just sort of like pander into yeah. and it's, it and again it's easier when like you don't have to see the the effects of right. what you say or do and the impact of that on the person who it's affecting yeah like um saying something to someone online versus saying something to someone in person and watching that person either react in a very aggressive way or even to watch someone cry yeah. in person is is very different you know yeah. what i mean yeah the degree the anonymity and degree of separation that the internet yeah. awards us i think allows people to be much crueler than they would be yeah. otherwise
Yeah. Well, um, I don't want to monopolize your time any further. The one, okay, I'm gonna ask you one last. Yeah, thing. yeah. Um, I thought, um, and I don't know if that's this is a question or a statement or whatever. Um, you did the one. Um, I don't know if you want to call it like a show or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, abortion is it's normal. Is normal. <laughs> I thought it was like it. Just automatically looking at it, it was very like jarring. Yeah. And I don't know if that like the shock value thing was a thing that you thought it of was intentional. You, yeah. But um. If you could like walk through that really quick, sure, yeah, close, yeah, I think it was it was really. Um, good. I guess that is one of the the exhibitions that sort of propelled me into infamy, depending on who you ask. Yeah. Um, that show um, was really very reactionary to what was happening um, in mostly in the South and the Midwest, mostly the South, I guess. Um, in twenty. 19 and sort of the spring of 2019 um and that was with sort of a a kind of rash of legislation proposed legislation against um reproductive health care specifically abortion with the six-week rule in certain states or non-access to um abortion care and so we decided to do a show to bring awareness to the issue um the show was called Abortion is Normal, obviously. Um, we chose that title because we knew it would get attention um, because it is obviously a very fraught and contentious title. People had major issues with it. Um, but our philosophy in choosing that title was that, you know, love it or hate it, you're paying attention to it. So it was definitely a, a strategic move on our part. Um, and I think we probably could have put a bunch of bad art. We could have put nothing in the show and people still would have been like, ah, this is so crazy. Um, We did put a lot of great artwork. Um, A lot of the artists were, not were, but are very um, famous artists who sort of jumped on board for the cause of bringing awareness and also raising money for Planned Parenthood. Um, But what people, I think a lot of people didn't, well, a lot of people didn't realize a couple of things. One that the statement abortion is normal was meant to imply that normalcy is is things that we don't are things that we don't challenge um so things that should be part of the everyday it wasn't sort of a as some people interpret it a, a call for everyone to like everyone run out and get an abortion <laughs> you should just like yeah. you know uh that is your solution to all your problems we weren't saying that um we were just saying as a medical procedure um, and as a as part of a, a philosophy of body autonomy and agency, we should normalize any type of medical procedure. Um, and you know, people have different ideas of what a, an abortion is. It can be many different things. Um, but people. Yeah, people interpret it in a variety of ways. I'll I'll put it that way. Um, But what we were trying to say was simply that, like, as a matter of healthcare, this thing should be normalized. Um, And it shouldn't be a political debate or a socio-political debate. It should be within couch and within the realm of healthcare. The other thing that people don't realize um, because of the title was that the show is actually not specifically about abortion or reproductive rights it was just about the idea of choice period and so we had a lot of artists in there who were um 
really just like across the spectrum of identities. There's one artist who was um, talking, whose work was talking about um, access to trans uh, gender affirming surgeries and like how in certain states there actually is no access to that. We don't often talk about that because, you know, a lot of people don't care, but um, that's one of the things that Planned Parenthood does is gender affirming surgeries. And in some states, they're not allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because everyone really think when they think Planned Parenthood, they're like, oh, the abortion people. But really they provide a, you know, and this is not like an ad for Planned Parenthood, but they provide like a spectrum of, of healthcare resources. Um, and so the show is more widely about agency and choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that was really lost on people. Um, and, you know, I think the show had a, it had impact in the moment. Um, I think the maybe unsuccessful parts of the show was that it was in New York City, which is like, you know, a bastion of liberalism. So yeah. I don't, there aren't all that many people in Manhattan who are like, abortion is terrible. Like we're all, you know, anti-abortion people. Um, so you would have rather like had this exhibition somewhere that wasn't like a bubble or. Yeah. And that was actually our original plan was to travel it cross country. Do you feel like that would have went over well? In no, it hundred percent would not have. It would, I think have been an unsafe endeavor um but you know the pandemic hit so we couldn't do it but there is still sort of grumblings about doing it again um because sometimes you know for uh the good of a uh or the benefit of uh i think a larger cause it's like sometimes you have to do shit that's scary i mean i got death threats Mm. um but that's not cool though yeah, no, it's not. But also people, you know, people on the Internet really with that degree of, of yeah. separation, they yeah. say and do wild shit. But um, it's a show. It's a show and a philosophy that I still stand behind, even I though thought it made it was a lot of people. Thank you. Made a lot of people very angry. No. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, you know, you shouldn't go through life just not. Like stuff should piss you off. I think yeah. there are certain conversations that I mean, sometimes people should be upset or offended or whatever. I yeah. feel like that's what gets stuff done. Yeah. I mean, avenues avenues to to systemic change are never easy. Because yeah. otherwise there wouldn't be anything to change. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess we could wrap there. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming out and Yeah, thank the, you so much for having me. Um is there anything you want to like maybe shout out or promote before we wrap or um any and like exhibitions coming up oh yeah we do we have an exhibition coming up here in newark um it is we have one of our programs is a feminist incubator program so we have this year we have four artists um it kind of ranges from four to six artists every year um who are female identified women artists um and they work in our space for about six to eight months and then they have an exhibition and so that show um it hasn't actually been publicly announced yet but that will open on april 23rd in our space at 800 broad all right awesome Awesome. yeah i i can't say like how dope this was i've been wanting to talk to you for a real thanks um anytime (laughs) all right um yeah guys thanks for listening
I'd like to thank our sponsors, Catalyst Case. This is Reg, and you're listening to Thought Hack.